0: Fanning. Weekends on 2FM. Now we've seen more of our world leaders than ever in the last two years and whether that's a good thing is debatable of course. The national address that's what I want to talk about. It wasn't a common occurrence in this country until Covid-19 burst into our lives and now it seems like there's a speech to the nation every week. Whether they're dealing with pandemics or recession or war or anything else, national addresses are always significant. Well, Graham Finlay from the UCD School of Politics joins me now to have a look at the addresses that made history. Graham. what Welcome back to the program. First of all, what's the purpose of a national address? Is it always, usually, almost definitely bad news?
1: Yeah, it usually is. Um, and it's usually a call. Now, uh, this is especially true of American addresses. Uh, but we, I think what we're seeing with these increasing national addresses is the Americanization and the presidentialization of politics all around the world, including in Ireland. But it's usually something which is either required, but more often is something exceptional It's a time of of tremendous division uh, and a time of crisis. And so what you see in in presidential presidential speeches in the United States or in our current situation is a call for unity, um, acknowledging that normally in the age of normal politics and normal life, we're divided. We don't agree about everything and, and we sort of have the luxury of that. Whereas these speeches almost always call for the nation to come together to fight something big. And that military metaphor really, really often creeps yeah. in, even if it's something like a pandemic, right, or a, a depression, right. So so um, it's usually pretty dramatic. You know, the president doesn't just usually show up to you know pass the time with us. Although that has happened, Jimmy Carter used to have fireside chats. As did, as did FDR. Mm. But Franklin Delano and Roosevelt. Okay, I'm going go mostly with... it's a call to action. Right? Okay, well, in, we in terms of examples,
0: Congress. if I have one here, starting with FDR, tell me about that. Nothing to fear.
1: Yeah. So FDR, again, having you know politics in the, in the Great Depression were as bitter as they were at any point. Uh, he had just defeated Herbert Hoover, and he was asking the country to do something quite extraordinary for it in terms of how much money the government was going to spend, the kind of areas of life the government was going to encroach into. It, you know, He was demanding a huge national effort in the depths of the Great Depression, and that's what he'd been elected to do. And so his speech to say we have nothing to fear but fear itself uh, – suggest that they could do anything. And, you know, wasn't this massive economic crisis, the incredible hardship mm. uh, with something like 25 percent of American, certainly men, um, unemployed, you know, he, you know, that wasn't the problem. It was the fear. It was the unwillingness to and act. That's a fear and that's what he was pushing. And, and, itself. and he, um, yeah. he was, again, using this sort of metaphor of war to bring the country together behind his power and his action to change things.
0: Oh, right, I'm going to start with that one from 90 years ago, um, FDR. And I am certain that on this day
2: my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency I will address them with a candour and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat
0: into advance. We always remember bits, fear, nothing to fear, but fear itself. What about JFK and his inaugural address?
1: Again, you know, a remarkable moment uh, where, again, he acknowledges the divisions, but he asks people to overcome them. He presents it as the changing to a new generation, which takes up the torch and uh, has a particular option, opportunity, but also a a tough struggle to preserve liberty, because it's in the depths of the Cold War. It was the first uh, speech broadcast in color on television. And it's a a rhetorical masterpiece. It has really wonderful phrasings, like, you know, ask not what you can do for your country, but what what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, um, which really resonate with us. If you think about Mm. how many sort of turns of phrase from these speeches we remember, um, I think it, it is a testimony to the construction of the speech.
0: And if you're talking about that, Graham, then surely um, I Have a Dream is the number one on that level.
1: I Have a Dream is often cited as the greatest speech in in history, certainly in English. Um, I I encourage everyone to listen to all of JFK's inaugural address and to especially all of I Have a Dream. It really both shows you how it's done, but it really um, gives you some of the context, which is often lost in the I Have a Dream speech. Sometimes people think he's only asking for non-discrimination, and as soon as that legal discrimination is gone, were grand, right? Whereas there's a lot of references to, to the militancy of, of African-Americans at the time, um, about the unrest in the streets, and about how, you know, freedom is going to be more than just getting down, getting rid of the laws which are holding uh, black people down. Because
2: I have a dream my poor little children. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious races, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and notification. One day right now in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have
0: a dream today. And 100 years later, the Negro still is not free, as he says, then prompted by Mahalia Jackson, who says, tell them about the dream, and she's behind. Like Some of that was, or parts of it, were parts of that ad-libbed, Graham.
1: He did make some changes. I mean, he, he talked about having a dream for a while in some of his speeches, but uh, it did really come together. And, and, and there is the suggestion that Mahalia Jackson, of all people, actually did elicit uh, some of the, the form it took. And yeah. what's interesting, I mean, they, all these speeches have different forms in many cases, um, which had been written. Uh, and so the, the other thing which really needs to be borne in mind, and especially American rhetoric, but in rhetoric in the English-speaking world, is the tremendous influence of the King James Bible, on on the way people form their sentences. Uh, And, of course, that's very obvious in Lincoln's case, but even especially in in Martin Luther King.
0: Okay. by the way, we are talking to Graham Finley about the history of the National Address. So let's just come right up to date and let's go to the Christchurch shootings with Jacinda Ardern. Tell me about that.
1: Well, again, Jacinda Ardern is a remarkable figure, as, as many people will, will know. Uh, and the speech after the Christchurch shootings, which uh, really, I mean, I, I think it's hard to imagine how much it could rock a society which had not been plagued by these kinds yeah. of mass shootings. Um, and, and particularly a leader who, who was trying to navigate a sort of modern, respectful, inclusive society and uh, to have it sort of traumatized by, by an event of this scale, as I think it would in this country as well, um, really gave her a difficult choice, but at the same time, uh, you know, a need to respond.
2: The families of the fallen will have justice. He sought many things from his act of terror, but one was notoriety. And that is why you will never hear me mention his name. He is a terrorist. He is a criminal. He is an extremist. But he will, when I speak, be nameless. And to others I implore you, speak the names of those who were lost, rather than the name of the man who took them. He may have sought notoriety, but we in New Zealand will give him nothing.
0: Right that's Jacinda Ardern um, in after the Christchurch killings in New Zealand Now let's go to something different here which is um, the announcement of the death of Bin Laden Now we're talking here about national addresses so um, um, what do you call him Obama what did he do exactly what did he say
1: yeah, It's a- it's an interesting sort of moment um, at some point, uh, and I think it maybe emerged from the Nixon era, where Nixon frequently found himself for bad reasons for him having to address the public. But Obama came out to talk about um, uh, Os- the death of Osama bin Laden. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a bit weird. Uh, the whole operation against bin Laden was a bit weird. But at the same time, It it was such a a sort of symbolic moment for Americans. Uh, I think many people tuned in for that to to, to sort of feel like maybe they're able to move on from this post 9-11 politics. But there he once again tried to stress the narrative of national unity about, again, the struggle against a common cause, which, which again, in this case was a military struggle, but also to to make sure that, that he recognized that this was not a war against Islam. But and that bin Laden had killed more Muslims uh, than, than almost anybody else. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. We will be relentless in defense of our citizens and our friends and allies. We will be true to the values that make us who we are. And on nights like this one, we can say to those families who have lost loved ones to Al-Qaeda's terror, justice has been done.
0: Okay, we had uh, FDR earlier on, America, the Second World War, Japan's December 7, Pearl Harbor. What around the same time, I mean, surely one of the most famous of all is Winston Churchill.
1: Yes, absolutely. And again, you, you see the, the, the Shakespearean, the, the King James Bible cadences, as people describe them at the time, at a time when Britain was
2: at its very lowest point. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it
0: do you know, I've heard that a few times. Like when you hear, um, what do you call it, um, Martin Luther King earlier on, he sounds almost like he's singing to a point or really getting into it, kind of thing. But um, Winston Churchill sounds like he's reading a bedtime story or something and then shutting the book saying, like, now go to sleep. He's got this amazing expect Like he's kind of, you feel he's sipping on a whiskey and taking the cigar out of his mouth or something.
1: Well, that would almost certainly was true because of the amount he drank, but, uh, you know, which was throughout the day. But you know apparently afterwards he he said we'll fight with them with the broken ends of beer bottles because yeah. that's all we've got and you know i think he maybe spoke that way just because of the the fear which people had in Britain at the time this was you know very soon um after dunkirk and you know the point where they really were bracing for an invasion which they were not prepared for. And the speech says, you know, even if we are conquered, which is a real possibility, you know, at least the Empire will keep fighting. Now you may have different feelings about the British Empire, but at the same at the time, you know, the the he I think tried to maintain calm and resolution, despite the fact that you know even he, in fact, he was probably more pessimistic than most because he knew what was going on.
0: Well, here's one then, which was straight out of your TV sets, and it was like you know, button up, folks, or else. And it's Charles High living beyond our means. Do you remember that one, now, Graham? Were you here for that?
1: I was not. Uh, no, it was 19 years before I got here, but uh, and I've been here a long time, but not quite that long.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I'll give it to you now here. Good evening. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs and the picture I have to paint is not, unfortunately, a very cheerful one. The figures which are just now becoming available to us show one thing very clearly. As a community we are living away beyond our means. I don't mean that everyone in the community is living too well. Clearly many are not and are barely enough to get by, but taking us all together we have been living at a rate which is simply not justified by the amount of goods and services we are producing. I'm off to Paris now to buy a shirt. It's bizarre <laughs> stuff. I, mean, yeah, I remember as well. And in fact, really in the years has made sure it's etched on our brains because I've seen that one a few times on it. What we're
1: seeing is the presidentialization of Irish politics. Yeah, and and yeah. Because... Ireland does not have a great tradition of the Taoiseach addressing, or the president, right, addressing the nation. Um, you know, Hayes was only the third speech of of its sort, sort of, really? uh, when he made it. You know, it, it was mm. very unusual. Mm. And it might, you know, you're probably better placed than me to to tell me whether this was Hayes' presidential style and presidential self-conception. But by the it time we get to the, IMF, the latter, yeah. And um, everyone wants the sort of gravitas of appearing in front of the flag or either behind a podium or behind a desk. So I think the idea of of turning the Taoiseach, who's after all only indirectly elected, into a, a kind of representative, which is more like the directly elected American president, is an interesting trend and maybe or maybe not a good one. But if it's necessary in the kind of crises we've lived through, maybe it's not so surprising or unwelcome a development.
0: Let's go for Leo from Washington. Um, tell me about that one. Well,
1: again, I, I definitely was there for that, and I remember listening to it, and it, I'm being quite moved. And I'm not going to disclose any political affiliations, and it's not really relevant. Hmm. It was really sudden, and and he was delivering it from Washington in the early morning. Uh, but it it was I remember being quite moved by it, just because maybe because of the suddenness. I don't know what other people's memories are of it, but you know, I remember being in life had being as normal in March, and then suddenly the schools closed right after this speech. And it, you know, it was a very, very good speech, and I think it was honest in a way which you need to be if you're asking people to make the sacrifices which we've now been making for so long, but also when you're trying to um, get, again, the country into a mode which is different from life as normal.
0: I know that some of this is coming as a real shock, and it's going to involve big changes in the way we live our lives. And I know that I'm asking people to make enormous sacrifices. But we're doing it for each other. Together we can slow the virus in its tracks and push it back. Acting together as one nation, we can save many lives. Our economy will suffer, but it will bounce back. Ireland is a great nation. We're a great people. We've experienced hardship and struggle before. We've overcome many trials in the past with our determination and our spirit. And once again, we will prevail. Thank you very much. OK, that's Leo Varadkar recently. Now, what about uh, Nelson Mandela? Remarkable
1: speech, which doesn't, I think, get enough attention because a, a huge, huge transformation. This was his inaugural speech in 1994 yeah. when he became president of South Africa. And he, you know, uses Desmond Tutu's Uh, invocation of uh, or description of South Africa as a rainbow nation. Uh, And he really cements it in the identity of of the uh, South African people and of the South African uh, nation. But at the same time, it's a remarkable address, both for its conciliatory nature, for its inclusive nature. He talks about a non-sexist South Africa as one of the crucial, peaceful forms, human rights-respecting forms that uh, South Africa is going to take. And a billion people around the world watched that speech. So it's, um, it had an effect and resonated far beyond uh, you know, South Africa. And he ends with this sort of pan-Africanist um, saying, God bless Africa, not South Africa. God bless Africa.
2: Out of the experience of an extraordinary human disaster that lasted too long must be born a society of which all humanity will be proud. Our daily duties as ordinary South Africans must produce an actual South African reality that will reinforce humanity's belief in justice, strengthen its confidence in the nobility of the human soul, and sustain all our hopes for a close life for all. All this we owe both to ourselves and to the peoples of the world.
0: Inaugural address it is, Nelson Mandela. And I just wanted to mention just one last thing, Graham, and that is we didn't go right right back. Can we go back 500 years? I mean, I know we don't have a recording of it, but Elizabeth I, tell me about that.
1: Yes. So in 1588, she made a speech to her troops at Tilbury, and it was a really remarkable occasion. And we have actually written accounts of the speech. What's great about these speeches is we have very often written accounts or the actual writing the drafts of the speech by the the speakers themselves. What it tells you is that the person who who gives the words for it to be a great speech has to have had a play part in writing it. And Elizabeth I wrote this speech, and it's extraordinary. Um, She um, appears in silver armor with a silver cuirass, which is like a breastplate. She may have been wearing a a helmet with plumes on it, or her helmet was, a silver helmet was carried in front of her. She was wielding a gold and silver bludgeon. And she says to her troops, you know, I may have the body of a woman, but I have the heart of a king, uh, and a king of England too. And she says that she will lead her people into this battle against the Spanish Armada, which was threatening to invade um, England and uh you know that she would never uh, allow this kind of thing, and she 'd lay down her life for it and and she wrote that, and uh, it was a speech to rally the troops now you couldn 't communicate to all the people of of England uh, at the time, but she you know this belief that sort of words matter, and that the the author of the words speaking them can can make. The people come together and achieve great things is right there in that speech and that very weird occasion where she's parading around in armor in front of her troops uh, with ceremony and, and things like that.
0: Okay, Graham, it's been a pleasure once again. Thank you so much for being with us on the program. Graham Finley from the UCD School of Politics. See you, Graham. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Dave. Dave Fanning, Weekends on 2FM.